We want to thank you for listening to audio from the Hill Church. We exist to glorify God by declaring the gospel of Jesus Christ through our lives together. If you'd like to learn more about our ministry or donate online, please visit us at thehillsd.org. Good morning again, church. We'll be at this morning, Matthew chapter 13. If you don't have a Bible, we have one in the seat back in front of you. I'd encourage you to grab a Bible and follow along, please. Matthew chapter 13 is where we'll be this morning. As you can see, we're starting a a new sermon series for the month of June called Treasuring Christ Together. Treasuring Christ Together. On January 3rd, 1956, that was a Tuesday, Jim Elliott and four other missionaries touched down in the jungles of Ecuador to engage face-to-face for the first time the Aka Indians. For years, Elliott and his team of missionaries had been praying and planning for this very moment. Uh, The Akas were known as a very dangerous people, one that had not been reached yet, had been attempted a few times. Uh, But these men had set out to take the message of the gospel to them. For three months, they had been regularly flying over the area, praying, dropping off uh, literature and gifts and shouting greetings to them. When they landed, they built a hut and they waited for Akas to come and find them. They understood the danger. Uh, Their wives had discussed the possibility of becoming widows. Yet they believed their calling to these people to have come straight from the words of Jesus, to go, to make disciples of all nations, the Great Commission. So they went in obedience, as they said, to their Savior. On Friday, January 6, three Akas approached him. They exchanged greetings and gifts. One of them, interested in the plane, in the airplane they flew in on, was given a ride. The first meeting seemed to go really well. However, two days later, after receiving no word from the team, a rescue plane was sent out and sadly found the remains of all five missionaries. They'd been attacked. They'd been martyred for the cause of Christ. All were married. Four were fathers. One wife was pregnant. A tragic story. And if we're honest, a story which we might seem, we might ask the question, it seems a bit unnecessary, and maybe even, if we're honest, a bit foolish. What were they thinking? Why would they attempt something like this with such great risk associated with it? In a journal entry Jim Elliott had penned some ten years earlier, we find these famous words which provide us an explanation. He said this, He is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain that which he cannot lose. He said he is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain that which he cannot lose. Elliot lived his life and he died his death by way of a, a kingdom mentality straight from the lips of Jesus. Elliot had come to recognize the empty, hollow reality of this world, something he could not keep. In light of the, and something he could not keep in light of the immeasurable value of the kingdom of God, which as a Christian was something he could not lose. He understood the permanence, the satisfaction and the glory of that which was to come because of the gospel. He understood its value. He lived his life, all of these men lived their life and died their death for the sole purpose of proclaiming the riches of Christ to a lost and dying world. Elliot valued Jesus over his comfort. He valued him over his safety. He valued him over his very life. 
the lives of these men, and in turn the death that they died, was determined and dictated by that which they valued above everything else. This morning, we're beginning a new five-week series. As I said, we're calling it Treasuring Christ Together. And the purpose of this series is for us to likewise consider what we value most as the people of God. And then in light of this, I want us to secondly consider how this should shape our lives. And not just our lives individually as Christians, but as a church, as a local church, as the Hill Church specifically. To be a Christian is to, is to know the same incomparable, immeasurable treasure that these missionaries knew. It's to possess the riches of the gospel of Jesus Christ, which should affect every, every area of our life. Now this may not mean we go overseas to a foreign country and preach the gospel, yet it may. However, while I think the expression of our calling may look different, the calling is same than nonetheless. The call is for each of us who claim the name of Christ to treasure Him with our lives. Our calling is to treasure Him and value Him above everything else. And if we value Jesus rightly, that's what I want us to see over the next five weeks. If we value and treasure Jesus rightly, we will, we will live accordingly as His people. What does it look like for us to truly treasure Christ together as the Hill Church? What are the implications for our lives together in light of the immeasurable value of Christ? We must live together, serve together, spend our time together, and yes, even spend our money together in a way which values Him as the immeasurable treasure that He is. So I want to begin this series as asking all of us a rhetorical question for you to think about. What do you treasure? What do you value most in this life? What do you understand to be the, the greatest of greatest value? Is it some sort of material gain or security, financial security, comfort, some sort of achievement or notoriety, a relationship you're seeking, or getting to a certain stage in life, getting beyond something? What do you treasure? Maybe we can your, your time, your energy, what captivates your thoughts, and where is your money most directly spent? Whatever that is, that's your treasure. And Jesus tells us, where your treasure is, your heart will be also. So this morning we're going to consider, we're going to begin by considering Matthew 13, 44 through 46, these two parables. Both of these parables make the same straightforward point. There's nothing more valuable than the kingdom of God. That's the point. Nothing. Its value is priceless. Its worth is incomparable. It's the treasure we should joyfully be willing to exchange everything for. That's the point. If you're taking notes this morning, here's my main idea I want you to go home with. As His people... We treasure Christ together by joyfully living under His rule and reign. I'll unpack that, but as His people, we treasure Christ together. I want you to think 
the church. We treasure Christ together by joyfully living under His rule and His reign. Matthew 13, 44 through 46. Jesus says, The kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field, which a man found and covered up. Then in his joy he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant in search of fine pearls, who on finding one pearl of great value, he went and sold all that he had, and he bought it. Father, For what we are not make us, what we have not give us, what we know not teach us, please, by your word, through your spirit, in these next 30 or 40 minutes. In Jesus' name, amen. Now we've we've addressed parables a bit as we've been going through Mark, but a parable, the parables are one of the most striking features of Jesus' teaching. And they actually comprise about 35% of all the instruction or teaching in the Gospels. A parable literally means to to throw alongside. It's a practical story. It uses common tasks or objects to illustrate spiritual truth. Parables are not allegories. They're not. The purpose is not to find meaning in every detail of a parable. Most of the time, parables make one single point. And the concern of the parables is always the kingdom of God. Its nature, its coming, its growth, its consummation. And that's what we see this morning in our text. Jesus says, the kingdom of heaven is like. This phrase, the kingdom of heaven, used interchangeably with the kingdom of God, is used 32 times in Mark's gospel alone. It's important uh, to his overall message. Now, we could say much here about the kingdom in the gospels and just the New Testament itself, but at the very least, we must understand how the kingdom of heaven speaks of the redemptive Rule and reign of God in Christ. The redemptive rule and reign of God in Christ. The words rule and reign are important. Because when we talk about the kingdom, we're talking about the authority, the sovereignty of God as king. The king is the point of the kingdom. We should not miss that. His rule and His reign. Now, God has... Authority and sovereignty over everything in the universe. He's the creator. He's the sovereign Lord. Yet even though scripture speaks clearly of how God rules over everything, this is not the primary meaning of the phrase, the kingdom of heaven in the gospels. Instead, the the kingdom of heaven is used to describe how God is asserting his authority specifically in the redemption of sinners through Jesus Christ, the son of God, the true king. We must be careful to note the timing of the kingdom. There's a sense in which the kingdom of heaven is a present reality. The king is here in Jesus. And his kingdom is advancing in Jesus. We've seen this in our study through Mark, right? God's rule and reign over sickness, disease, the demonic, and death itself is asserted in the person of Jesus. However, at the same time, there's also a sense in which the kingdom of heaven is still a future realization. Jesus speaks of the kingdom which is to come. The king is coming again. And his kingdom will be fully, finally expressed on that day. This is essential to remember. The kingdom has come in Jesus, but it also is still yet to come in Jesus. There's a now, maybe we could say, and a not yet to the kingdom. 
So the redemptive rule and reign of God in Christ is infiltrating the world now, but His kingdom will be consummated, won't be fully consummated until later when Jesus returns. So what does that mean for us? So that means that as the church, the people of God, we live between the times. And living between the times, as the people of God, we are called to live a certain way. We're to live as kingdom citizens under the rule and reign of Christ. And I think from this text, to do that, there are three things that we need to consider. Actually, three things we need to share as the church. And they're going to be this. The, we're going to, we need to share a proper perspective. We need to share a proper motivation. And we need to share or embrace a, a proper cost. So let's look at the text one more time and then we'll walk through these. The kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field which a man found and covered up. Then in his joy he goes and sells all that he has and he buys that field. Now while a a very common practice in this day, hiding treasure in the ground seems a, a, a bit foreign to us. We put our money in savings and banks and bonds and real estate. But in those days there was no bank or no place to put resources for the average person. So it was common to take valuables and to hide them in the earth for safety, especially in Palestine, whose history was filled with war after war. The first thing invaders and enemies would do when they, after a battle was they would go steal all the valuables. So when a battle was on the horizon or about to take place, they would often go out into the field and bury their treasure and tell no one about it. It's not going to be your treasure. The earth was a common storage place. But far too often, men didn't make it home from war, from battle. And their treasure would be left in the earth unless someone stumbled upon it. And such a story is what Jesus used to instruct us regarding the kingdom. Here's a man in a field. We don't know, maybe plowing, maybe tilling, we're not told. But he comes across a treasure buried in the ground and he immediately covers it up. He leaves it where he finds it. And then in great joy, he goes and sells everything that he owns to buy that field to ensure he gets that treasure. The point being, this man found something of such value he was willing to sell everything he had to purchase it. He was so overjoyed and ecstatic that he was willing to do anything to have the treasure. It was priceless to him. Then we have the second parable, the pearl. It's linked to the first. We see it again. Likewise, again, the the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant in search of fine pearls who on finding one pearl of great value went and sold all that he had and bought it. Notice this is a merchant. It's a wholesale merchant who buys pearls for the purpose of reselling them. Pearls were of the utmost value in this time. Something like diamonds in our day. If you had pearls, you had wealth. Merchants could go to great lengths and travel great distances to search for pearls. They would cast themselves in the bottom of the sea to try and find oysters which contained these treasures. So here's a man, a merchant, searching for the best pearls to take and resell for a profit. And yet he does something really foolish here. As a wholesale merchant, the, the safest thing to do is to diversify your product. But he's willing to, here to bet everything on this one pearl he has found. He believes it to be of such value that it's worth selling everything he has to get this one. He's, he's really willing to bet his entire business and his entire livelihood on this one pearl. A really bad business decision. Unless he's right. Unless it is the priceless pearl. The main idea again is found in the valuable nature of the kingdom. 
represented by this treasure and this pearl. Here's what we discover first. Treasuring Christ together begins with us sharing a proper kingdom perspective. Treasuring Christ together begins with us sharing a proper kingdom perspective. As I've pointed out already multiple times, the meaning's straightforward here. The kingdom is priceless in value. That's the perspective we must share as the church. To truly treasure Christ, we must understand the incomparable value of the kingdom of God. When we, when we speak of the value of the kingdom, we're speaking about the value of the king. We're speaking about the gospel. We're speaking about the redemptive work of God in Jesus Christ. We're, we're speaking of the incomparable value of knowing Christ, of being in His kingdom and of fellowshipping with Him, the King, living under His rule and reign, all of which is made possible solely through the work of Christ and the gospel. There's nothing more valuable than the redemptive rule and reign of God in Christ. Nothing on earth is worth keeping to gain access to the kingdom. The kingdom of God is a treasure rich beyond measure. Peter tells us it's imperishable, undefiled, unfading, kept in heaven for us. However, it's not easily seen, right? It's not just laying on the surface. It's like a treasure hidden in the earth. It's like a pearl and an oyster in the sea. In other words, this treasure is not altogether obvious. The value and pricelessness and the preciousness of, of this kingdom is missed by perhaps, we could say by most. Many hear about it but never truly grasp its value and its worth. Maybe it's important, but it's not a treasure. Paul says in 1 Corinthians Two, the natural man does not accept the things of the Spirit of God. They're folly to him. And he is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. To find this treasure, you must be willing to look beyond the surface of this world, which most people are not willing to do. Everything of value in this world is merely surface level. Think about it. We sang... All I have is Christ. If you're a Christian, all you have is Christ. Everything else will be gone. But you have everything with Christ. Everything of value is merely surface level in this world. It's it's temporal. It, It won't last. It's loud. It's shiny. It's distracting. It's deceptive. It captivates and causes the real treasure to be missed altogether. Ultimate value is beyond this world. It's eternal. It's secure. It's full of riches. It's the kingdom of God. And as the people of God, we are to strive in all that we do in every area of life to advance the kingdom, the kingdom of heaven. If you're following along in our Bible reading plan this week, we, we read through Colossians 3 where we find this, the words of Paul. If you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is seated. Seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on the earth. If you have died, you are, your life is hidden with Christ in God. What a beautiful statement. When Christ who is your life appears, then you also will appear with Him in glory. So you see it. This is a perspective we must share together if we are 
if we want to live rightly as God's kingdom people. We live for the kingdom of God because we know its value and its worth. We know its treasure. We know the king. So we must be willing to trade everything for it. Now, this in no way means we detach from this world. And that is a, an often but a gross misunderstanding of this treasure. In fact, it's just the opposite. Sharing this kingdom perspective frees us to truly live in this world for that which really matters and will last. C.S. Lewis says this, A continual look to the eternal world is not as some modern people think a form of escapism or wishful thinking, but one of the things a Christian is meant to do. It does not mean we are to leave the present world as it is. If you read history, you will find that Christians who did most for the present world were just those who thought most of the next. The apostles themselves, who set on foot the conversion of the Roman Empire, the great men who built up the Middle Ages, the English evangelicals who, who abolished the slave trade, all left their mark on earth precisely because their minds were occupied with heaven. It is since Christians have largely ceased to think of the other world that they have become so ineffective in this one. Aim at heaven and you will get earth thrown in. Aim at earth and you will get neither. I believe all we need, to, we all of us need to consider this morning. What surface things in our life are we placing too much value upon? Which are keeping us from truly treasuring Christ and His kingdom. Have temporal, earthly things grabbed your heart, causing you to devalue the treasure of the kingdom? The question is, what are you living for? That's the question. What are you preparing your spouse for? What are you raising your kids and your grandkids for? To be good citizens in this world alone? Or to be citizens of the kingdom? What are your relationship with friends and co-workers and neighbors aimed at? Surface level alone? Or helping them see, grasp, and enjoy the treasure of Christ? Church, if we, if we truly are going to be effective in this world, we have to see beyond it. We must share a perspective concerning the treasure of the kingdom of heaven which must shape the way we live in the kingdom of man. So that's the perspective. Let's talk about the motivation. So secondly, treasuring Christ together demands us sharing a, a, a proper motivation. So a proper kingdom perspective and now a proper kingdom motivation. You see in verse 44 at the end there it says, Notice how it says that in his joy he goes and sells all that he has and he buys that field. But we don't need to read past this too quickly. I think we easily can miss this little statement, but I fear we could miss something essential here. We could miss the proper power, the proper motivation, the kingdom motivation we're to share if we're going to truly treasure Christ together. 19th century Scottish pastor Thomas Chalmers spoke of the gospel as expulsive in its power. He says this, I quote, 
it expels, the gospel expels lesser treasures. It awakens a new appetite, a new affection, a new sense, a new taste, a new longing in the heart that nothing but Jesus can feel. And that longing and that delight in Christ expels every rival. This is what happens in the heart of this man when he finds this treasure. In his joy, he goes and sells all that he has and buys this field. This treasure captures joy. This man didn't sell everything out of duty, out of simply because this was the wisest decision, though it was. The text says he did it for joy's sake. That's why he did it. He delights to have this treasure. I think actually this treasure actually possesses him before he possesses the treasure, right? He goes in joy. It's got his heart before he ever comes back and puts his hands on it. This is a new affair. It rules his heart and overrides everything which once seemed so valuable that his life revolved around. This treasure has now become that which moves and propels his heart. It's his kingdom motivation. Living under the rule and reign of Jesus is no burdensome task. It's joyful obedience. Does that mean it's all easy? No. Joyful submission to the king because of the treasure that he is. As one pastor says, joy, I think we quoted this when we were studying through Philippians. I love this definition. Joy is the flag that flies on the castle of the heart when the king Jesus is in residence there. Jesus speaking to his disciples in John 15:11 says the things I have spoken to you that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be what full 1 John 1:4 John says uh, writing concerning Jesus and we are writing these things so that our joy may be complete Whereas Paul writes in Romans 14:17 for the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking but of righteousness peace and joy in the holy spirit True joy, joy that this world is so desperately seeking is bound up with this treasure. You want to know joy? Know Jesus. True joy, true motivation is found in possessing this treasure. Jesus says where your treasure is, your heart will be also. Treasuring Christ is the motivation for the Christian life. I want you to hear something very simple, very, very important. There's only one way to overcome a desire in your heart. Good or bad. Your struggle with sin and wrong desires will never be overcome by trying harder. You won't ever overcome that desire by simply telling yourself, over and over again, and louder and louder, stop it. It won't work. The only way to overcome sin and wrong desires in your life is to replace them with an even greater desire. That's the only way. The only way that you loosen the grip of lesser desires is for your heart to grab hold of something more glorious. That's it. Truly understanding and embracing the value of the kingdom, the value and worth of Jesus is how we overcome sin in our lives. Men, 
and women, but men, I want to speak to you clearly here. If desires are grabbing your heart for things your eyes should not see, you will not overcome that desire by simply trying harder. You must value Jesus. You must come to see that the value and the treasure of Jesus is anything is greater than anything else. You must replace that desire with a greater desire. Misplaced desires stem from misplaced treasure. That's what Jesus says. Where your treasure is, your heart will be also. If your heart's in the wrong place, it's because your treasure is the wrong thing. The same gospel which saves us is the same gospel which enables us to live the Christian life. We can't forget that. We cannot live the Christian life without the proper power and the proper motivation. We must have hearts set ablaze for Jesus, which happens when we treasure Him for what we know Him to be. And we treasure Him for what He's done on our behalf. Thirdly, treasuring Christ together requires us embracing the proper kingdom cost. Both parables, the word buy or bought is found. And this is important. Now, I'm not saying that we can somehow purchase our salvation. Of course not. That would go against everything the Bible teaches regarding salvation and stand against really what everything I stand up here in each week and try to preach about. You cannot earn, purchase, or obtain your salvation. A rich man can no more buy his way into the kingdom than a camel can fit through the eye of a needle, Jesus says. Salvation is a free gift of God's grace, not of work so that no man may boast, Ephesians 2. Of course we cannot purchase our salvation. However, there is an exchange that takes place in salvation. There's a transaction required to live under the rule and reign of Christ. There's a cost associated with the kingdom. Luke 9, 57-62, we read this. I think it will be on the, on the screen. As they were going along the road, someone said to Jesus, I will follow you wherever you go. And Jesus said to him, Foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. To another he said, Follow me. But he said, Lord, let me first go and bury my father. And Jesus said to him, Leave the dead to bury their own dead. But as for you, go and proclaim the kingdom of God. Yet another said, I will follow you, Lord, but let me first say farewell to those at my home. Jesus said to him, No one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom of God. There's a cost here. One says, I want to follow you, but I'm not willing to give up my comfort. Jesus says, no, won't happen. The other wants to wait to bury his family to receive the inheritance. He's not willing to give up his money, his inheritance. Jesus says, no. And then in the most pointed illustration, the third man is not willing to leave his household, and Jesus says, no, again. He says, no one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom of God. Now listen, again, you cannot earn your salvation by giving up comfort, your money, or giving up your family. That's not the point here. The issue concerns the cost of the kingdom, the value of the kingdom. 
In light of its great value to enter the kingdom of God, you must be willing to give up everything, to give up your very self to receive Him because of the value of the kingdom. The kingdom is of such value, you must be willing, if necessary, to give up everything to get it. Matthew 16, 24. Then Jesus told His disciples, If anyone would come after Me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow Me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for My sake will find it. You must be give up all you are to receive all that He is. That's the cost of the kingdom. That's what salvation looks like. That's what living under His rule and reign rightly entails. It's exactly what Jim Elliot was saying. He is no fool who gives up what he cannot keep to gain that which he cannot lose. Becoming a Christian involves the act where you exchange... I want you to hear this. If you're not a Christian this morning, I want you to hear this. Becoming a Christian involves the act where you exchange your rule and reign for His. That's what it means to become a Christian. You get down off the throne. You're no longer king He is. You submit to Him. You recognize that He is the one worthy of your life because He purchased it upon the cross. You do this solely because of the incomparable value of the kingdom. Paul says it this way. Whatever gain I had, I count as loss for the sake of Christ. I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For His sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish, in order that I may gain Christ and be found in Him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know Him and the power of His resurrection and share His sufferings, becoming like Him in His death, that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection from the dead. There's a cost associated with the kingdom. We all must be willing to embrace if we're going to live rightly under the rule and reign of Christ. Paul understood this. He joyfully embraced the cost. Paul did as these men in these two parables. And what did they do? They did a careful cost analysis of the treasure and the pearl alongside their lives. That's what they did. They placed the value of everything in their lives on one side of the scale and the total value of the treasure, the pearl, on the other, only to find that the value of the kingdom far outweighs anything and everything they could ever gain. What am I saying to you? Here's what I'm saying to you. Jesus Christ having Him, knowing Him, enjoying Him, enjoying the forgiveness He provides, having our consciences clean from His shed blood, being adopted into His family, being made heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ, being changed into the likeness of His image from one degree of glory to another, being guided by Him, by Him, having our identities secured in Him, makes Him more valuable and precious than gold, even fine gold. Amen. He's our treasure. There's no cost deceiving Him. Honestly, there's no sacrifice to the kingdom. You're not giving up anything that you're not going to gain a hundredfold. He's the incomparable treasure. 
He's the pearl of great price. The value Jesus never depreciates. It's not like the scary, for me at least, San Diego housing market. His brilliance never tarnishes. His worth can never be topped. We will spend eternity discovering the depth of His infinite value and the worth and His worth when His kingdom is fully consummated. What are you valuing this morning? That's where we began. What are you treasuring this morning? Can you honestly say it's Jesus? It's His rule, it's His reign over your life. Or have you misplaced the value and worth of things in this world which may be distracting you and detracting you away from truly treasuring Christ? For some of you, that's because you haven't accepted Jesus as your Savior. You never beheld Him as the treasure that He truly is. You've never seen your sin and the desperate state that it leaves you before a holy God. You've never seen the penalty do you because of your sin. And then you've never seen Jesus as the solution. You've never beheld His glory as your Savior, as the one who died for your sins, offering you forgiveness and eternal life. Do you see Him this morning? Do you see Him as the treasure, as the value this morning? Are you willing to sell everything to follow Him if it's asked of you? If so, He stands ready to receive you this morning by repentance and faith. Church, we're wanting to consider what it looks like to live rightly under the rule and reign of Christ in this series. This begins with us embracing Jesus as He truly is. We must value Him and treasure Him above everything else. Why? The table tells us. The table that we're going to partake in just a minute explains to us very clearly why He's the treasure. He's the one who shed His blood. He's the one that laid down His life. We must share the proper perspective We must possess the right motivation and we must uh, embrace the right cost. We know He is the treasure. We know He is the priceless pearl. We know that because what He's done for us on the cross. Therefore, the question we need to consider over these next couple weeks is how do we live for Him? Particularly, how do we live for Him as a church? How do we worship Him with our lives? Here's, a, here's what I want us to do this morning. Twofold. I want us to consider again this morning our treasure, our value. If you're not a believer this morning, we would ask that you do not partake when the, the cup and the bread comes by. Let it pass by you. Because what we're saying together as a church is this is our treasure. You haven't said that yet. We don't want you to check out. We want you to 
Consider again who Jesus is to you. Consider again what he has done in his death, in his life, his death, his resurrection that's represented in the, the cup and the bread. And what value do, do you place upon that? If you don't know Jesus this morning, you can. When the service is over, you can find me. We can walk through the scriptures and we can talk about the immeasurable riches of Christ. And maybe today you can confess of your sins and make him Lord of your life. For us as believers, I think kind of a twofold response is going to happen this morning. We're going to pass the elements. And you're going to stay seated and you're going to take them individually or with someone next to you if you want to take them with a spouse. But you can do that at your own time during the song that we'll play. So we're not waiting to take them back again. But I want you to do two things. I want you to think about, question your own heart and repent this morning where you have misplaced values concerning Jesus. What have you elevated to the place that Jesus should be? We need to repent this morning again. And then we need to, I want you to worship Him, Jesus, anew as the treasure alone that He is. We're going to have a posture of repentance and then a posture of worship this morning. And ask Him to help each of us to live rightly under His rule and reign.